Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Full Comment. I'm Anthony Fury. Don't forget to subscribe to this show to learn when new episodes are posted. Our guest today is Victor Davis Hanson. He is a classicist who for decades has been teaching and writing about ancient Greece, but he also uses his knowledge of yesterday to help us understand the issues we face today via his books, columns, and appearances on popular programs like The Tucker Carlson Show. His new book is a must-read, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Victor Davis Hanson joins us now. Hello, Professor. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Before we get into uh, these, these great ideas that you're unpacking, in the book, I wanted to take a moment to ask you about the COVID situation uh, in your country right now, and I guess in your state, California, because one thing I find very interesting is when I'll have a, a friend travel to a part of the US or the UK or even another part of Canada, they always come back and they're like, oh, wow, they're doing it so differently there. I mean, things are just so different. And I see in the news in the US, there's jurisdictions where uh, you know, people don't even talk about it anymore. But then there's other places where, you know, kids are still wearing masks outdoors. What, what's going on there right now? Part of it is, uh, it's somewhat similar to your system of provinces, but we, our federalist system of, you know, we are not 330 million people in aggregate, we're 50 states. And the constitution says that the powers not delineated in it are relegated to the state. So that means that these uh, COVID restrictions, while they're scientifically quote unquote based, they vary in terms of culture and geography and politics. So as a general, but not an absolute rule, those people in red states, that is more conservative or traditional states, generally allow people a greater degree of discretion about exercising caution. All I don't know if any red state governor hasn't urged people to be vaccinated, but they have suggested that people should be entrusted uh, with their own health decisions rather than in the blue state model uh, in which the, the state government then comes in and tells a citizen, if you don't have a vaccination card, you can't eat, for example, in New York or San Francisco. And the problem with it is that in this divided country, the blue states have said that they are following the science. Hmm. But when you break that down, and you see that much of the science suggests that people with naturally acquired immunities have comparable, if not in some cases, superior immunity to those that were acquired, acquired it through vaccinations. There's no avenue for them to have equality. What I mean by that is you could have a soldier that got a bad case of COVID. And this is not an abstraction. A hundred million Americans, almost one out of three, have had COVID and have immunity. But that soldier, if he chooses not to get a vaccination, will be given a dishonorable or excuse me, a less than honorable or just a general discharge from the military. It's almost as if and this was sort of coming out of the brain of Dr. Fauci, the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases under the CDC. So it's kind of incoherent. And that's what a lot of the protests, I think, are about. When, we, when you hear about uh, all these protests, I know it's a lot of it is from some communities that are uh, less than representatively vaccinated, the Latino community, the black community, the poor white rural community. But a lot of the anger is of that hundred million that some of whom were not vaccinated, they don't feel they should be, and they have not yet give, been given a scientific explanation why they should be denied, be denied constitutional rights of association and expression uh, by a fiat or an edict by a non-elected bureaucrat like Anthony Fauci. One thing I find very bizarre, very troubling is that a year and a half into this, you'd think, okay, you know, we got the vaccines and then to your point, many people have had this already. And, and we kind of, you know, we'd be out of it or we'd be out of the worst of it or, or the worst of the sort of societal divisiveness. But I find in some respects, like to your point about uh, the persons in the military, I mean, I've gotten emails recently from nurses who have just been fired or will be fired and because they haven't taken the vaccine. And our vaccination rates are, are much higher in the United States. We're at close to 90%. And, you know, we went into lockdown more recently, the last lockdown, because, oh, you got to protect the healthcare system. Now we're firing a bunch of nurses. And then there's arguments over, you know, parents have to be vaccinated to watch their children play hockey in the hockey rinks and so forth. And this is the stuff that's really just, you know, tearing communities apart. I'm like, wow, this far down the line, 
And in some sense, it's scarier than it was earlier. Yeah, I think an outsider might look at this and empirically conclude that there are a lot of unelected, and I talk about the unelected and the dying citizen, but there's a lot of unelected people who combine executive, legislative, and judicial power. Uh, these are cabinet secretaries, EPA, the CDC, the FDA, and they got into a frame of mind where they were given enormous powers from the citizens and they don't want to relinquish them. And I'll give you an example. When did, when in the world did the CDC decide whether a, a rent contract was valid or not? In other words, in the United States, if the CDC declares a national threat, and it has, then uh, that contractual arrangement between two private parties is interrupted, and the renter doesn't have to pay rent to the landlord, even though a lot of the landlords are very poor, in some right. cases, no wealthy or even poorer than the person renting them. And so it's that type of power that's been assumed, and they don't want to give it back. And yet, when you look, again, empirically, where I live in California, we're very proud of our quarantines and our vaccination rates. But if you look at the actual deaths per million residents and you compare it with states half our size in population like Texas and Florida, they've been relatively wide open. We're not that different. We're about the same. And that really raises existential questions. Why did we impair our economy? Why is our unemployment rate higher? why 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 when these other states their attitude was essentially this virus is not going to go away but we can deal with it it may mutate it may do this or that but it relatively stays predictably uh, lethal for people over 65 who have comorbidities such as obesity diabetes cardio problems and we're going to concentrate on them quarantine people around them and we're going to look at therapeutics we're going to give regimens and we're going to save that vulnerable population. But the rest of us, and I'm not in that group, but the group under 65 that's healthy, it's about 99.8 to 99.9 .9 likelihood you're gonna die from it. And so those people can use proper precautions, but it's not going to be that much different than a flu epidemic of which kills in a normal year anywhere from 20 to 70,000 people, unfortunately. But that message should not sink in because of the hysteria about the coronavirus. And, and now it's been so warped and politicized. Part of it's been due to Dr. Fauci because he's given so many edicts from on high and then later admitted that he used the platonic lie to delude us. He said, that you didn't need travel bans, then you did need travel bans. You didn't need masks, then you should have a mask. And I only said you didn't have to have masks so you wouldn't run out and buy them all and short our medical community. Then maybe two masks are better. But you know what? We'll be out of this at 60% herd immunity, but maybe 70. But you know what? That would discourage people from getting vaccinations. So maybe it's 90%. And then I had no, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, why would the National Institute of allergy, infectious diseases, ever give $600,000 for virology research in Wuhan. That's preposterous. Well, we gave it to the Echo Health Alliance. That was Echo Health. We didn't know what they did. Well, we routed it through them to the Chinese, but they didn't uh, engage in gain and function. <laughs> and now we learned today that the, C the National Institute of Health admits that American money helped sponsor the type of research that likely led to a re-engineered gain-of-function virus that likely escaped from a lab and is likely the culprit of this world pandemic. And yet how many times was the, the mere questioning of whether or not that had taken place based on evidence that perhaps suggested it did, how many times was that mere discussion labeled by Facebook or uh, you know those fact checkers or wherever Reuters or Washington Post, how, how often was that thread line labeled as misinformation and now we come to the point where you just said, yes, it's been validated as pretty much just what happened. Yeah, I mean, it was a taboo subject. I know that as a fellow at the Hoover Institution with professorial status as a senior fellow like a Stanford faculty, I was attacked. My colleague Scott Atlas was attacked. Neil Ferguson was attacked. Another colleague at the Hoover for suggesting not that we were experts, although Scott is a doctor and an advisor to the President of the United States, he was, that there was gain of function given the literature. 
and there was no evidence whatsoever that any animal, a bat, a pangolin, anything had ever had this virus in the natural world. And it was very suspicious. But at the time we said that over a year ago, we were demonized and labeled that we were conspiracy theorists, we were Trump fanatic, you name it. So there was an effort on the part of Dr. Fauci and the CDC and the FDA and the NIA uh, ID all to suppress open discussion and debate about the origins and then without knowing the origins and the transmissions and the landscape of how this developed it really retarded any therapeutic reaction to it and now all of a sudden we learn not only was it likely a gain-of-function engineered virus at Wuhan subsidized by the US government but more importantly the investigatory group that was in charge of finding out the truth was headed by Peter Daszak, who was a recipient of Dr. Fauci's mm. grant, who routed it to the Chinese, who went to the Lancet British Medical Journal, and under their auspices created a so-called disinterested group of investigators to tell us in conjunction with the Chinese that this was impossible. Not only was there no biology lab origins, but there was no gain of function research only to have now we're told that he was removed and then he was biased and you know just forget all of that and so the, the point i'm getting at is that in a normal world we would have had quarantine and uh, traditional public health reactions to those who were vulnerable once we had the data and we had the data pretty early who was going to die from it and we would have isolated them in new york governor cuomo unleashed unleashed 15,000 positive corona patients into rest homes. So we didn't do that, and they all, most of those people died. But we would have protected that population, and then we would have not destroyed the economy, and we're going to probably end up with a higher toll as information starts to leak and dribble in that for the last 18 months there were millions of Americans that were denied access because because of the quarantine to things like breast exams, mammograms, uh, PSA tests, liver scans that now have serious diseases that might have been not so serious had they been detected early. So there was a terrible, that's besides the economic cost. And then we've made it kind of a cult that if anybody were to object to all of what I described, they were somehow apostates or renegades or conspiracists, as I said. So. It's been very, it's, it's a shock, and I don't know why Dr. Fauci is still there. Part of it's Donald Trump's fault. He made fun of him, he mocked him, and he kept him. He would have been much better to praise him to the skies, put his arm around him, thank him for years of service, and then said at 80 years old, he's done enough and he's going to be gone tomorrow. Huh. He didn't do that. Interesting. Your book, The Dying Citizen, discusses many of these issues sort of throughout as you tackle different elements of citizenship that you see. Uh, really suffering right now in these times. In the headline, uh, in the subheadline, talking about destroying the idea of America. I think the idea of America is, is something that I think is discussed a bit more in American society, in American schools, uh, than we at all talk about our nation here in Canada. We don't do that very much. So if I can ask you just to explain, when you say the idea of America, what does that mean? What is the idea of America? Yeah, I outline that in six chapters that's the subtext of every one of them and i say that historically there to have a constitutional system whether in canada or here you have to have the idea of a citizen which is a very rare idea and that's based on certain principles that we know from the past you have to have a large middle class you can't have an idea of america with a feudal society and we're becoming feudal in california where you have a very powerful elite that's wealthy and well-connected and influences government to its own want, wants and desires, and then a large subsidized impoverished class. But a large middle class that's autonomous then checks the power of the wealthy and the subsidized poor. They also need a space, a confined space, confined. It's not just fluid borders like the late, late Roman Empire, but you have to say that we can create citizenship if we inculcate common values, traditions, histories, and civic education. But we can't do that when we have millions of people, two million this year alone, crossing into our border whom we have no idea who they are. 
We have no idea what language they speak. We have no idea what why they're coming, what they want from America. And we, the host, have lost all confidence in assimilating them and integrating them and intermarrying them in the, in the way. We have 50 million people almost that were not born in the United States. And here in California, 27% of the population was not born in the United States. Even for a society that's confident about its values and the powers of assimilation, that would be a very hard task to create Americans. And then finally, we have this in America, and I know you do as well, where we have a bicoastal elite who have been very, very successful under globalization. In other words, they had skills in media, finance, insurance, uh, academia, law, corporate world of really tapping into a 7 billion person market in a way that people in the interior, in the physical jobs of, you know, manufacturing or assembly line work or small farming, or their, their products or their labor could be outsourced or offshored or Xeroxed overseas. And they were so-called losers. And then there was a whole vocabulary of disparagement that followed deplorables, irredeemables, clingers, dregs, chumps, is to quote Biden and, and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. So these are the elite efforts. And you can see where globalization is leaving to. It's this admiration of the Davos, Klaus Schwab, Great Reset Group, and the idea that a bunch of elites can get together and then craft international tax law or international diversity requirements on corporations or uh, you think that's on the horizon, international yeah, uh, legislation or regulation? I think it's already happened when there was the G20 is already just suggesting that any nation that doesn't adopt a uniform tax code of uh, corporate uh, taxes will be punished. And they're you know, looking at countries like impoverished Ireland that's done pretty well by telling corporations we will give you a more free landscape to operate in uh, in exchange for the investment you bring to our impoverished economy. And that now the, the wealthy countries say, no, 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 you're not going to do that. Or in the United States, the Biden administration and Secretary of State Blinken has said to the United Nations, we would like members from the Commission on Human Rights to come in the United States and adjudicate in this period of turmoil whether you find that we are racist or not. Of course, Nobody in the United Nations would ever say, we want to investigate the Chinese to find out right. if there is really a million and a half Uyghurs who are in forced labor camps or there are, are forced operations to harvest organs or forced abortions. We want to find that out. But So this idea and theory of cosmopolitanism, we're all going to be citizens of the world, is really asymmetrical. And it's basically a fear of China, which gets a total exemption on everything from climate change and carbon emissions to human rights. And yet we, are, we would subordinate United States sovereignty to a group of nations. The vast majority of them are not constitutional or consensual. Uh, let me ask, uh, since you brought up foreign affairs in China, uh, how that plays into the framework you're discussing right now. Because in recent months, we've had uh, some flare-ups happening in, in the area of Israel. Uh, we've had Kim Jong-un doing a couple more tests. Um, obviously, what's going on in Afghanistan, where the Taliban feels more emboldened than ever. And then Xi Jinping uh, making a lot of challenges, including being in something of a war posture towards Taiwan, such that we haven't seen in decades. And I look at that and I go, well, that stuff wasn't really happening when Donald Trump was president. And then people say, well, Joe Biden is being tested. And one goes, okay, is that, is that something unique to Joe Biden? And these tests are going to continue and they're going to be more than tests. They're going to be action. Or is this just what happens when there's a changing of the guard and it's all just kind of smoke to see how tough this new administration is? Well, I think what you're describing is a classical loss of deterrence. That's just a fancy Latinate word that says that you can scare people so they don't do something stupid. And it's based on the idea that deterrence arrives from either material ability to stop an enemy from doing something, attacking you or your interest or your allies, and the will to use that power. And once that is established by prior behavior and strong powers then uh, can deter weaker powers or they can deter similar powers, even bigger powers. 
But when you lose deterrence, and I'm talking now about the free world and the United States as its self-appointed role as ahead of NATO and the Western democracies, and by extension, the post-war order, which the United States has played, the United States then has told North Korea or Iran or China or Russia that we have certain interests that promote uh, prosperity and security. And if you impinge on them, there will be consequences. Sometimes we do it well, sometimes we don't do so well. But when you go into Afghanistan for 20 years, and then suddenly, suddenly, even though you're scaling down because the majority of the American people want you to, you know, at some point get out of a 20-year commitment to a pre-industrial society, a traditional Islamic society, nonetheless, if you do that radically and you give up in the space of a week a billion-dollar embassy, a $300 million airbase, $80 billion in equipment and training invested in that equipment and skedaddle and leave thousands of people who are going to be butchered or murdered or persecuted that came out of the woodwork to support you, then other countries are going to say it's a very dangerous thing to ally yourself to the United States because every once in a while the radical left takes over the United States. And when they do take over, they renegotiate a lot of their commitments. Donald Trump was a realist, and some people called him an isolationist, but he did keep deterrence. And by that I mean, he took out General Soleimani. He took out Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. He, bom he did bomb his promise ISIS to smithereens. He did attack when Russian mercenaries attacked Americans in Syria. He, he, they obliterated 200 of them. He did tell Kim Jong-il, do not point missiles at west coast cities or you're going to find it yourself in big trouble so while he didn't want to commit sizable troops and he wanted to reduce radically the imprint abroad in afghanistan he still made nato pony up 100 million more dollars and we do have 145 bases or contingents around the world today but when you start to question what were they going to do and the biden administration just nine months has basically told the world you know what, we don't care about humiliation, we don't care about any of this, we've had a, a pride flag flying in Kabul, that was good, we had George Floyd murals, that was good, we had a gender studies, that's what we're interested in. And promulgating this version of equity, first world equity, uh, a, lot of, a lot of very dubious nations are going to say, you know what, this might never happen again. The United States just won't react. It's in a crisis of confidence. If we go into Taiwan, let's go in 10 miles today in their airspace, 15 miles in their maritime sphere of influence, and we'll increase it each day until we find any resistance. And so that's what's happening as we speak. You're absolutely right. People like Putin, people like the communist Chinese, people like the North Koreans are meeting and they're saying, just what does this mean? How far should we push this? Are we going to get a, a, another administration quick? If this is a golden moment, maybe we can absorb all of the Ukraine or Belisarius, or we can take in uh, more areas of the former Soviet Republic, or maybe we can finish the Taiwan problem for good, or maybe we can even bully South Korea into the, to disconnecting with Japan and the Philippines and Australia and the United States. So it's a very dangerous period we're in. What's going to happen next? I know you're also an author of military history books, and, and you've taught at military institutes, and there's all these great power theories in terms of how nations look at each other when one is on the ascent, one is on the decline, and so on. I mean, what, what are the next moves on the board? The next moves? Yes. What, uh, what, is, what is Xi Jinping seriously thinking about doing, or is he just watching the U.S., and are, are they happy with seeing these sort of well, he, he looks at the world and he says he's got about a thousand nuclear weapons. And the United States has 7,000 of them. And he knows that the United States did take out Saddam Hussein, didn't do too well in the reconstruction, but they know at times it's hard to predict. It's unpredictable. And it's got enormous military power. It has 11 carrier groups. It's got the most sophisticated military in the world. And while the general society is in decline, the type, the profile of Americans that go into combat units in the U.S. military 
Army, Marines, Navy, or traditional Americans, and they've proven themselves to be the best fighters in the world, that particular group of them, if they're well-led. I'm not sure that latter is always true. So he, he knows that he does not want to get into a fighting war with the United States. The last time he did it was a Korean War, and the Chinese people, the People's Liberation Army, lost over a million and a half soldiers. And they were, you know, stopped in North Korea, South Korea, and expelled. And, and that's one of the reasons they never invaded Vietnam. So he has a history of, of being very careful, but what he's looking at now is, yes, that's true, but we have now 1.4 billion people. Our economy is on a trajectory to match or excel the United States within five to six years. The United States is in a sea of disruption, social, cultural, economic, political turmoil. And maybe, just maybe, we can, uh, project a, an image that we're stronger than the United States. So what they're doing right now, specifically in answer to your question, they're going to the Australians. I know that for a fact. You talk to them. They're going to the Japanese. They're going to the South Koreans. They're going to the Philippines. And they're saying, look, we're creating a it's sort of like the Japanese co greater Asia co-prosperity spheres of 1940. They're saying, in our territory, you people in Australia have natural resources. We need them. You people in Japan have been a traditional enemy. There's no need for that. You people in South Korea have always been friendlier to the Chinese than you have been the Japanese. You people in the Chinese know that you have territory that you can't really control, that we could absorb. So all of us are going to be in a family controlled by China. It's going to be sort of a mercantile, asymmetrical system. And if they say, well, that wouldn't be fair, that wouldn't be symmetrical, that wouldn't be equal, they said, you really, what's your alternative? You want to ally with a distant United States? Now, that was working yeah. for a while, I know, with the Belt and Road Initiative, and a lot of people were being signed on to deal with China in, in many different ways. And here in Canada, we have uh, some troubling aspects of that. But I know in the past year and a half, there's been rising skepticism and, and a, a greater push for decoupling. That phrase is used here in Canada now to decouple from China. Do you think the past year and a half has, has kind of, you know, nipped things short um, uh, for the China ascendancy? In the last year and a half, China has made more political, global, economic progress than any, any time in its entire history, vis-a-vis wow. -vis the West. So they're not uh, moving backwards now. They're progressing yeah, even the, further. Yeah, the virus turned out to be a windfall for China because... Forget about whether they handled it well or they're being transparent, but just right. think of what the message has been to the world. We don't think a virus escaped, but maybe you do. And if it did, it paralyzed the entire world, but it paralyzed your world much more than it did ours. We wouldn't want that ever, ever to happen again, would we? And in a way, that's a creation of deterrence. So now we have people in the United States saying, oh my God, what might leak out of that viral that virology lab next and what will we do about it? and they know that and so they kind of wink and nod and saying let's all get together and stop ha 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 and it's it's a very strange thing and then secondly they're not just pressuring states around them but with that much cash they are influencing decision makers and all aspects of our culture within the united states I'll give you three or four examples. The most prominent people in the news the last month have been Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci was engaged in subsidizing gain-of-function research at Wuhan. A second person is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley. He's been in the news. Why? Because he called up the PLA general and warned him that he would uh, warn him in advance of any attack. Can you imagine a Chinese four-star general calling Millie up and saying, if these crazy people in Beijing ever, ever think about being aggressive toward you, I'm going to call you up. So they, they interpret that not as magnanimity to be reciprocated, but as weakness to be exploited. And then you look further and you say, well, who else is compromised? Well, how about Hunter Biden? He still has this 10% stake in a Chinese financial company that has given him millions of dollars, and he won't give it up. And we know that Joe Biden, he had traveled as private citizens and as when Joe Biden was vice president to China with Hunter Biden exploited 
for the Biden Incorporated Family Syndicate or whatever it was. And he's got his and art gallery deals now. That that amazes me. I follow the art world. I've been to the Chelsea galleries many times. You, you don't suddenly just get an exhibit at one of the top galleries yeah, in Manhattan it, it, it and you only started painting six months ago yeah. and they go for 400K each. I think, I think Hunter Biden's <laughs> message is basically, I kept this family afloat from the moment Joe Biden was vice president in 2009 until he was elected in 2020 for 11 years I, I was a grifter and i went to ukraine i went to russia i went to china and i did all of these quid pro quo grifting deals and i funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into the family syndicate especially to myself hundreds of millions and joe biden built a big home he has three homes he didn't report income tax. Now that he's suggesting he never paid income tax on $500,000 worth of obligation. Well, wait, wait, hold, hold on. Let me, let, let me clarify here. Biden has not, because I know we went through a lot of drama with Trump and income tax, and you're saying that Biden also did not file income tax? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying in the midst of accusations that Donald Trump took uh, either on unlawful or unethical deductions that lowered his tax rate, which right. the left had been hammering on, We've had independent people uh, associated with the congressional bu budget and tax people, but also private uh, accountants and scholars who said this money that Joe Biden got was not taxed at a rate that it should have been taxed. He didn't pay payroll okay. tax on it. And it was a, probably a $500,000 bill that he owed. We're also discovering in this, these communications with Hunter Biden uh, on his laptop that he was funneling ex uh, money into the Joe Biden family account. It was a shared account where Joe Biden was paying bills, and that was not reported as income. So, Sorry, a man in his 40s still shares a checking account with his father? I haven't shared a, a bank account with my yeah. parents since I was, well, I don't it, know, however old, 13. I, I don't think it would be... I don't think it would be mundanely called a checking account. Right. It would be some type of shared business expense account. Yeah, fair enough. But the point I'm making is that the indirectly, Hunter Biden has been compromised by the Chinese. So then the, the question is posed, given all of that liability and given all the damage he's done with his missing laptops and his behavior, and his investments with China, why in the world would he be doing this art scam where everybody in the United States says, we know who's buying this paint by numbers primitive art for $75,000 and up. These are foreign lobbyists and foreign powers. And why would he be doing that? And the answer is in a very strange way, he's exercising leverage over his own family. If you read his emails, mm. He's, he's full of angst and anger at them. He says, you know what? I kept this family going. Mr. 10%, the big guy, that, referring to the president, and his nieces, and all of you people, I did the hard, you know, heavy lifting. So I think he's basically saying, I'm Samson with an arm around every, uh, each pillar in the temple, and if you keep pushing me, I'm going to pull it all down. I can do whatever I want. I think he's totally out of control. But again, what I'm getting at is, if you have the president with that liability and you have general milley's conduct and you have anthony fauci's conduct and you add into the equation bill gates praising the chinese reaction to the virus who has sizable and was probably the first major investor in china then you have michael bloomberg running for president lecturing us that china is a consensual society as he puts 10 billion dollars uh in capital to uh, finance startup companies run by or at least associated with the Chinese Communist Party, at what level do you have independent autonomous voices in America that are worried about the Chinese threat? And the answer is, it's very difficult. I work at Stanford University and I can tell you that last year they arrested a visiting neuroscientist, a visiting professor, not because she had Chinese ties, but she was working for the Chinese military. Right. And it's a, a, a level of infiltration that's it's, it's insidious, and the money is so great and powerful, whether it's Fang Fang uh, having a romantic election, uh, relations with Representative Eric Swalwell, who's on the House Intelligence Committee, and we didn't even know that, or it's Dianne Feinstein admitting five years ago as, as head of the Senate Intelligence Committee 
that her chauffeur for 20 years, 20 years listened to her phone calls in her car. Oh, that's was awkward. a Chinese <laughs> communist operative. So it's, it's not paranoid to be very worried about the reach of the Chinese Communist Party within this country. Pivoting a little bit here, because you brought up Stanford University again. And about the general university system, the approach to education that we're dealing with right now, when I flip through the beginning of the book, I mean, I see a lot of references to antiquity, of course, your, your, your specialty, talking about what the plays of Euripides can teach us and so forth. And yet we're also living in an era where we know that stuff is being pushed out, it's being discouraged in terms of a classical education, and so many people are, are you know, to use the Goethe phrase, living from hand to mouth in terms of the information and the education they're receiving to, to kind of assess the contemporary scene. What's going on in the education world right now, and how does that play in to, to destroying the idea of America to the dying citizen? Well, I kind of pointed out that most of the bad ideas that you and I have discussed, um, whether it's altering the constitutional system or identifying by race or abolishing borders can be found 30 years ago in the university. And that's because the university became, especially the elite university, it became immune from the general society. The professors are tenured after just six years. They're not subject to accountability. There's no exit test for graduates, so we have no idea that they're any better at math or science or language or literature when they leave the university than when they enter. Uh, these endowments have soared, so you've got 50 billion at Harvard, 30 billion at Yale, 28 billion at Stanford. It's not taxed. And what are they doing with all of that capital? Are they helping the students be better? No. They're spending on diversity coordinators, on pretty fancy living. You know, we have everything now for a student from rock climbing walls to latte bars. So what my point is that they're entirely unaccountable and they live in a fairyland where no one else is subject to such exemptions from modern, you know, employment as the professor class and these students. And then yet when they leave, not all of them are well-educated and all of them uh, most all of them, except maybe the very wealthiest, have student debt. So you'd think that with all this money, they would at least subsidize their own debt. And that would make the, you know, the moral hazard, then they wouldn't have this moral hazard of saying, oh, we, we have no responsibility for the debt that our students incur from the government. It's not our concern. So we're going to jack the rate of tuition higher than the rate of inflation. And we don't really care how well educated. That's a prescription for a disaster. What do you think of these Google diplomas? We had a previous guest break down for us what's going on here in terms of the issue with kids going into many years of university for things that they're not paying attention to and then arguably don't need, but they're getting into massive debt. And Google has started out its own version of a university where you only go for two or three months. You probably know more about it than I do. And then you get a this sort of diploma and that at least they acknowledge that as equivalent of a of a four-year university program. I mean, there are those things that there's a future? You're obviously not getting a classical liberal arts education in all of that, but is there utility to that? I think what's happening, the university is very scared right now because it's not just the 1980s for-profit, you know, trade schools. There are sophisticated online curricula now that are traditional. Hillsdale College is a good example. They get millions of people who sign up for their courses for free. And you can pay a little bit more and get college credit for it. And there is uh, K through 12, in which the university has the monopoly on training those teachers. There's a lot of anger now because they're not just politicized, but they're incompetent. So that if you look at charter schools or parochial schools or homeschooling, the rates are, are really increasing. And there's a lot of push here in the United States to say to the universities, we reject your idea that you have to have a credential to be a public school teacher. You have a monopoly on that, but you don't have to have a credential to be a junior college teacher. You don't have to have a credential to be a professor. You don't have to be a credential in a Catholic school. Why do you get to credential people and put them through this, you know, boot camp of, we call the Department of Education? When, why don't we just give an academic degree? They can go anywhere and they get an academic degree if they want to be a teacher. Just get a year in master's degree from an online group or something. So there's a lot of anger at the university, not just 
the failure of, of higher education, but what we're seeing in these school board uprisings, and essentially we're saying that these teachers through the credentialing process got a whole year or two of indoctrination from professors of education. And they put these rarefied theory, critical theory, critical legal theory, critical racial theory, new monetary theory, all these theories, they started indoctrinating kids, kids. And you end up with something like the Virginia uprising that's not gonna cease. What is at issue at the Virginia uprising? There's two or three things. Number one is students began after George Floyd's death and the reaction and the rioting started to come home and it accelerated during Zoom when parents were actually, when the schools were shut down and they could actually for the first time see what the teachers were doing to their children in their own living room as they watched the Zoom. But they understood that this was not civil rights education about content of our character, not the color of our skin, Martin Luther King Jr. brand. This was, you can be racist to stop racist. You can discriminate to stop discrimination. White people, white people, white people, white people, white people. And they, they said, I'm not gonna put my kid and have him or her come home and tell me that me, that I, my family, my parents, my grandparents, you know, my father who flew a B-17, my cousin who died in uh, Iwo Jima, my great-grandfather who fought for the North, we're, we're all toxic. That's not gonna happen. And then more specifically, uh, it was kind of triggered because a parent found out that his daughter had gone to a transgender, a, a girl's restroom and a biological male that was transgendering raped her and she was underage that would be forcible rape that's a you know a first class felony and the school hid that fact and did not tell the public and the parent got outraged and then went to the boardroom to make the public aware of what the school board had not been transparent about and that opened up again this whole idea that these schools were arbitrarily deciding uh that females would share restroom facilities with men that were biological males. And what I just said is impermissible in the university. You're not to use the word biological males. So who, who is pushing all of this in terms of the administrators? When we talk about the critical race theory, we saw just the other day Condoleezza Rice making an appearance on The View that a lot of people shared and found a very powerful statement of why she doesn't support these policies that you know put people at loggerheads based on race. And at least up here in Canada, from what I see, I, I don't think that people of any walk of life, you know, regular parents, Latino, black, white, or what have you, are, are particularly asking for all of this, this sort of divisive stuff none in the classroom. Them, none of them are. What's happened politically, and I kind of talk about that in The Dying Citizen, every issue now that is less, I mean, let's face it, we're, they're leading to what I would call a civilizational collapse in just nine months. So you look at the supply chain, and that is a direct result of new monetary theory where we think we can print two trillion and then another three trillion for infrastructure and that five trillion will be spread around we're going to give six hundred dollars a month for the victims of capitalism i don't know or covid lockdown not to work so we have the highest rate of labor non-participation in our history we can't get people to work 24 hours three shifts to unload ships but that represents empty shelves or when the biden administration they came up with this sort of european idea of carbon emissions so we're going to cut out two and a half billion a million barrels a day we're going to cancel pipelines with your country that would facilitate the use of much needed oil and gas and now what's happened it's five dollars a gallon for a californian or an american that's outrageous and it's almost six in the bay area and so a lot of people say i cannot afford that I wasn't prepared for that. Why did you do that? We were independent. We were the largest oil and gas producer in the world. The Middle East was irrelevant for us. We didn't have to go over there. We weren't worried about Russia. We had control over the price that affects Iran's income. Why would you give that away on a theory of, of man-engineered climate change that could be altered by government action? And so when they look at the border, that you said the border was a construct and everybody has a birthright to come in the United States. Look at it. They're not vaccinated. 
people don't know English. We don't know where they're from. Why did you do that? So what I'm getting at is that all of those political positions and policies did not, never, never polled 50%. And once they were enacted, they led to utter disasters. And now independents and conservative Democrats and now a lot of liberal Democrats are saying, I can't live like this. I can't walk out in San Francisco. There's, there's no pharmacy now. They've shut them down because looting is de rigueur for a lot of people. There's no, there's no consequences. I can't drive my pickup anymore because it's, it costs $100 to fill up and it's only three quarters full. I, I had Christmas presents. I can't get them. My kid came home and said that I was a racist. I, this is intolerable. So they're starting to get angry. And, and there hadn't been accountability, you see, because Joe Biden ran a stealth campaign. And he said, I'm the old guy you remember from 30 years ago. I'm good old Joe Biden from Scranton, the moderate Democrat. And I'm not Elizabeth Warren. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not Beto O'Rourke. I'm not the, the rest of them. And on that principle, he was nominated and he did not campaign and the money was raised in exorbitant amounts and he won. And then he was a stealth president. He's not answered questions. He's not able to. He's 78, but he's not a vigorous 78. But his Do you believe there's great debate about that? You know, and I, I know there's still people relitigate whether or not Ronald Reagan did uh, have issues towards the end of his presidency. And that's a deeply passionate thing argued by people who worked among him and, you know, everyone on the Washington scene. Is, is that an issue with Joe Biden right now? Yeah, but the point is that he carried this hardcore socialist agenda on his back under misleading pretenses that he was vigorous and engaged and the media was so sick right. of Trump and and that was a complete myth and after nine months when he doesn't know where he is and as some people that age that have cognitive issues get angry and he says things that can be interpreted as sexist or racist or he breathes on somebody or he goes off on a tangent now people are saying I don't have goodwill for Joe Biden, and I'm not going to overlook that I never had goodwill for his policies. Hmm. So suddenly, after Afghanistan and his lies about, you know, just go to the airport and you get on a plane, no problem. Or, you know, this, all of this stuff he says is nonsense. So what's happened politically, he's not able to carry the issues, but he's a force multiplier of their unpopularity. He, Joe Biden, the person, and you look at his polls, 52% positive, 45% positive, 43%, 39%, 37%. And, All in nine and months. 36 And so they're polling right where, do you, do you like the Biden economy? Do you like the Biden borders? Do you like the Biden energy policy? Do you like the Biden uh, racial relations policy? And they're right about 36 so he's down there with them. And all of these Democrats, and they look toward this election a year from now, are saying, you know what? These mm. guys who, who gave us all this live in places like Massachusetts or Illinois or some crazy left-wing district. But the majority of us are, are representatives from either plus five Trump or plus five, a fluid congressional district. And we're going to lose because our opponent's going to blame us for every one of these mm. things and they're starting to panic and a lot of people on the on the left if you read the commentary every day i've never seen them more depressed they went from ex exhilarant to chronically depressed speaking of looking for the exit ramp the dying citizen how does one rejuvenate that what is the concluding message to the dying citizen? How does one breathe yeah, fresh breath? My, yeah, my message is that we have to support policies that encourage autonomy and self-reliance and not subsidies, whether they're wealthy people getting subsidies from in, as insiders or dependent poor. You can't have a state where 50% of all the births are, are subsidized by Medi-Cal in California, or one-fourth of the people you meet, you don't speak the same language with them or we're gonna to have to take control of our borders, the citizens are, and they're gonna to have to say, it's not racist, it's not xenophobia, it's not nativism, it's not protectionism, just to have a, a, a border. That's that's the common stuff of civilization. We're gonna have, the citizens gonna to have to say, you can call me a racist, 
you call me any name you want, but I'm going to judge people by the content of their character and not their general appearance. There's not going to be any more quotas, no more set-asides. Race is going to be incidental, not essential. And then we're going to have to say to the John Brennans who lie under oath or the James Clapper who lied to the Senate under oath or the James Comeys who suddenly can't remember 245 times, we're going to hold you responsible. And if you lie under oath, you're going to face the same penalties that the citizen does when he lies to the IRS. So we're going to have to hold our uh, uh, elites accountable. We're going to have to say to the universities and everything, this system has worked for 233 years. We're not in the 233 year of our history just because of some crackpot theory that you cooked up in the faculty lounge. It's not going to change the electoral college. And we're not going to get rid of a 150-year Supreme Court of nine justices and get that. And I think that's happening as we speak. And then finally, we've, we've got to stop. And I think it's starting that the citizens are starting to say, I'm not impressed by the EU. I'm not impressed hmm. by, the, by the UN. I'm not very impressed by the Paris Climate Accord. I don't think the Iran deal was so good. I don't want to go to Davos. I don't like people at Davos. They don't represent me. I don't like all of these wealthy, elite, privileged people who sound like Bolsheviks as a virtue <laughs> signal while they're never subject to the consequences of their own ideology. And I think that will happen. But uh, the way I look at it, we had long-term problems that threatened citizenship viability. And then we had a terrible 2020. We had the pandemic. We had our first national quarantine, our first self-induced uh, recession. We had the George Floyd death. We had 120 days of rioting and looting that was basically exempt from consequences. We had 102 mail-in ballots, 102 million. We've never had that. 62% of the people did not vote on election day. And yet the error rate decreased by a magnitude of 10 from about 5% down to point three or 0.4%, depending on the state. We had the, the riots on January 6th. And out of that turmoil, ideas were, were promulgated in advance that no one in their right mind in calm times would have ever, ever uh, supported. And then we had Donald Trump, who was a very controversial and polarizing figure. So I think once all of this starts to quiet down, people are reasserting uh, the citizens control over their culture, over their economy, over their politics, and they're very angry. And I, and I think that the left has no idea, the left, the hard left has no idea what they've woken up. And I think the Democratic Party, the traditional Democratic Party is terrified because they do. There's a lot to unpack there, but there's a lot more of it in The Dying Citizen, how progressive elites, tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America. Victor Davis Hanson, Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.